Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Hey, welcome back to the AMR Studio. Today we are featuring an interview that Jenny did with Ana Rita Brochado on the 18th of May. Ana Rita was also part of the UAC webinar series on the past 7th of May. So if you're interested in learning a little bit more about her research in particular, you can go ahead to our YouTube channel or the link in the show notes to watch that recorded talk. And with that, we leave you with this interview. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to this month's interview. Uh, today we have the pleasure of having Dr. Ana Rita Bruchado with us. Uh, could you please introduce yourself a little bit and tell us about where you're currently working? Hello, my name is Ana Rita Bruchado. I'm a group leader, a junior group leader at the University uh, of Würzburg. This is a small uh, city in southern Germany. Uh, yeah, and I work uh, in systems biology of antibiotic action. Can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up where you are? How did you get to this, to this place? <laughs> It's a bit, a bit of will, a bit of serendipity also. <laughs> I am originally from Portugal mm -hmm. and I studied biotech engineering, so I have more, more of a technical background. That's why I, I guess I like systems biology a lot, so I like a lot this very close connection between uh, quantification of biology, so mathematics and biology go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I moved to Denmark, where I did my PhD in modeling of yeast metabolism, so in a very different topic. And then in the middle of my PhD, it just happened that my supervisor moved to the EMBL in, in Germany. <laughs> Suddenly, I ended up being a visitor there because my supervisor was there. And uh, through this visiting time, I met my postdoc advisor that was a starting junior group leader at the EMBL. And he was start, he was, uh, his group, he was working in, in high throughput approaches to study microbiology. And he had this at the time, I talked to him and he had this project to, to study drug combinations in, in bacteria and gram negatives yeah. using high throughput approaches. I really liked it. So I joined the lab. And then after that, the postdoc went really well. I, I had a great time there. And after that, I just said, oh, I really want to do this because it's really, I continue doing this because it's really nice. I enjoy working in this. So then I was through my postdoc looking for places. Mm -hmm. And Würzburg is a great place to do research in infection biology because there is a um, critical mass of people here, mostly focusing on RNA biology during infection, but not only. Okay. Uh, so it's a nice place uh, to do yeah, infection biology. And, and then I thought, ah, it's nice because then I, it's what I don't do so much. I don't do infection so much, but then I can no. complement um, with antibiotics. And, and so that's why I ended up uh, in Würzburg. Yeah. So you jumped from yeast. Yeah. Of course, uh, it's a little bit different. I mean, for some of the people yeah. listening, it's a different class of life. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fun, it's an eukaryote. Eukaryote, yeah. So that's quite of a jump. Did you, was it an interest or was it just like a chance that you turned to, to prokaryotes and bacteria? It was an interest. I, as I said, I studied biotechnology, so mm -hmm. I never really studied uh, complicated uh, eukaryote systems. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I really like the systems biology part of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could, of course, I could work on antifungals. It would also be a possibility. <laughs> Yeah. But I really liked the approaches that were being developed by the time I started my PhD to work in bacteria. And I, mm -hmm. I have to say that bacteria have very nice characteristics that are very fast growing. So yeah. you can do bacteria is so easy to work with. 
Not all. We should say that there are bacteria that can be really complicated. I have a bias um, to you. I work with the easiest bacteria to work with. Yeah, but so, some, especially if it goes into clinical isolates and so yeah. it, can, it can get really complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I, I thought, yeah, I mean, antibiotic resistance is very important. Bacteria are uh, easy to handle. So this is good for quantification. Yeah. yeah, this is very nice for quantification. And I'm assuming for, for high throughput too. I mean, you kind of want to minimize the complications. Yeah. Yeah, very important. Maximizing as much as you're doing. And if we clarify too, so high throughput, you're basically just doing a lot, if you yeah. put it that way, trying to maximize yes. what you put into the system. Yes. So you can get out a lot of information and kind of comparatively analyze, if I understand yes. right. Yeah. So ideally, what we do is that you try to take a simple experiment and as simple and robust, the best. So for example, take, take an example of growth curve. Yeah, mm-hmm. you, you want to grow your bacteria in the presence or absence of an antibiotic. Mm-hmm. And this is something you can do in the lab. It's a pretty easy experiment. Uh, and what we do is that we minimize the volume and maximize the number of experiments. Yeah. yeah so and then you can do this many, 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 many times, like thousands of times. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can ask much more uh, wide open questions. Uh, so we don't ask exactly how this antibiotic is working. We could ask, for example, how this bacterium reacts to a wide range of antibiotics at different mm-hmm. concentrations in a time-resolved manner, for example, instead of taking snapshots. So it's really depending on the question that we want to ask. Yeah, but it helps when you're kind of trying to get this bigger picture analysis of something yes. to have this this setup. Yes. And uh, so antibiotic combinations, mm-hmm. it's, that's where you kind of came into this yeah. high-throughput approach. Was it was just because they were working on that at the time, or is no, actually not. Ah, did you start that up? Uh, it was in Lasso's lab. Yes, so Lasso's was my postdoc advisor. Mm-hmm. I was the first one starting antibiotic combinations in in his mm-hmm. lab. He was not working on this yet, um, and we started out of pure interest. Uh, yeah. And because so antibiotic combinations are quite challenging to work. Yeah, with. I I think this might come maybe as a surprise for the people that are not so much working uh, with antibiotics, but I think for those who work with antibiotics, they will know it's really challenging because it's very much concentration dependent. You don't know what concentrations you can use. Uh, so this makes the experiments quite challenging. So high throughput yeah. is perfect because the number of experiments is not what is limiting you. But then we, we were like, you know, there are so little known on combinations in a general in a general perspective. And how mm-hmm. do they change if even from bacterium to bacterium? Nobody will know. So we basically cannot predict not even for E. coli. There was one paper for E. coli by the time. I mean, one systematic paper. There is mm-hmm. a lot. I mean, combinations are quite studied, but not in a systematic no. way, right? So and then we started the question, what happens? What happens to other organisms What are, for other bacteria? Can we actually transfer the knowledge from one to the other? Mm-hmm. Um, and so on. And this was unanswered. So we decided, let's let's do it. Yeah, that's a good, good approach. And I yeah. think it's also important to remind people that, you know, antibiotic combinations is something that's widely used clinically and relatively empirically. I mean, we don't really yeah. often know. And at the time, you often don't know maybe exactly which bacteria is causing the infection. You maybe don't know all these details. But it's considered, you know, if you use two antibiotics, you're less likely to cause resistance. And there's other there's other ideas behind combination yeah. therapies as well. But we don't know so much about what happens with specifically that infection. We don't know no. if, if the combination is helping the patient or if it's decreasing the risk of resistance. We don't really know what they call synergies. Uh, if the combination of the antibiotics are actually making them work better than the individual antibiotics on their own. If I understand right, that's what you were working on too, was basically seeing... Um, yeah also looking so, for synergies and seeing if this effect was 
Actually, I always think I always think I'm, I'm not sure if we were looking for synergies. We were just looking, just Sometimes looking, but like just looking. Yeah, that's um, how you should do science. <laughs> yes, that's I think so. It's yeah, uh, it's a very I, unbiased I, approach. I think sometimes the granting agencies think differently. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, I think I think first we, we were just looking because um, I think yeah, synergies is more important for the clinic. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean you definitely would like to have this super good combination that kill and kill yeah. fast and nothing survives and I mean this would be awesome from the mechanistic point of view antagonisms are as interesting as synergies yeah. so antagonisms is when the opposite occurs yeah that you yeah. put the two drugs together and suddenly you have an outcome that is weaker than what you would expect and it's absolutely clinically important I think it's just not yeah. as commonly uh, thought of that you know we could have situations where we're actually weakening the effect yeah, you can ha- you can have you can have, yeah. and uh, I mean there are different visions on on this kind of interaction. So the first thing is that we actually found that antagonism is, if at all, more prevalent than synergy. So one needs to be ah. quite careful in mixing things at random is not a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because I feel like that's a general rule of like <laughs> yeah. science. Maybe don't just throw stuff together all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is one interest one interest outcome. Yeah, mechanistically speaking, both synergy and antagonism are a deviation from what we would expect. So they imply mm-hmm. functional interaction either between the targets or between off-targets of the drugs, which might yeah. be often the case. But this kind of, we call it emergent properties, uh, they, both of them, scientifically speaking, imply that the targets or the action of these drugs somehow are functionally related. Mm-hmm. Um, and this helps to uncover a lot of biology. So I, I'm, as I say, we we're just looking and I'm happy to find one or the other yeah clinicians would like synergies uh, <laughs> synergies are hard to work with you because the yeah. cells are dying fast mechanistically <laughs> speaking is uh, much more challenging yeah no but i think there's very important to know when there's antagonistic yeah. properties of combinations i mean especially from a clinical standpoint it's- there are also quite some studies that suggest that you can use antagonisms to prevent the development of drug resistance because mm-hmm. you actually lower the pressure uh, the selective pressure, yeah. You can also imagine species-specific antagonisms where you can yeah. use, for example, um, because this is, was actually one of the most interesting findings that we got, that the synergy and antagonisms are both highly species-specific. It's going to depend mm-hmm. a lot on the species that you are working with, which means when a patient takes drug combination, probably the, all the different microbiota species are going to feel this differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, can, you could also use antagonisms to protect the gut microbiota, or at least some individuals in the gut microbiota, while, while you still target the, the, the pathogen. Yeah, kind of make broad-spectrum antibiotics into slightly more narrow spectrum, trying For to minimize the, the downsides. The, yeah, the collateral damage, yeah. That's a very interesting approach. I haven't thought about mm. that before. Um, did you find a lot of differences? You say species-specific yeah. antagonism or synergism. Did you find a lot of difference between the same species? Yes. yes. So comparatively to the to the interest to the interspecies. So mm-hmm. between two species, the overlap it's it's really low. Yeah. Okay. And especially in antagonism, it's really low. Mm. Within a species, and we can talk particularly about E. coli. Mm. Uh, we had only two strains, so it's not. Mm-hmm. But they were. They are both sequenced, and one was the lab strain, and the other yeah. one is the gut commensal, quite distantly related. But the overlap was about was about seventy percent, so it's also not not, not a huge it, overlap. It's large, but it's it's not maybe what you would expect if you're hoping that just knowing the species would give yeah. you all the information you need. That's yeah. not really no. what. No, it's not a comfortable and, level. <laughs> no, and in most of the cases, what you observe is that um, antagonisms are not conserved, and we actually also found that. 
this probably has a lot to do with drug transport. Antagonism mm-hmm. has a lot to do with drug transport. So drug uptake, drug efflux. Um, yeah. And this, the mechanisms of regulation of drug transport are probably not very well conserved. No. Uh, across species, for sure not. Yeah. Um, but even within a species, I can imagine that they can better tolerate changes in this kind of machineries than changes in DNA replication machineries or drug targets, per se. It's not really central mechanisms for the cell to handle, you know, how the yeah. drug gets into or out of the cell. That can, that's more of this, this kind of thing that can change in yeah, the exactly, depending exactly. on their niche. Yeah, it, there is conservation within species, mm-hmm. but it's also not full. And most of no. the cases, what you see is that okay, this combination is a synergy or an antagonism for this mm-hmm. strain, but it, it's just nothing for the other strain. It's just added yeah. for the other strain. I mean, it's very re- very rare that you find really a conflict saying, okay, mm-hmm. it's synergy for this and antagonism for that. This is very rare. Yeah. But it's more either happening or not. Mm. That's interesting. No. So you're still working with this concept now with antibiotic combinations in the yeah. high throughput. Yes, so we we brought the concept. Uh, We are uh, focusing a little bit. uh, We are working uh, on on specificity. Why are they specific or why Mm -hmm. not in some cases? And uh, we also refocus a little bit on trying to understand because we did this work um, during my postdoc and we mostly focus on sub-MIC concentrations that we see what happens. So concentrations under under what would kill the bacteria. So concentrations where the bacteria survive but are affected usually. Yeah, so to say, or even manage to grow. So yeah. that's the point, yeah. But then again, the action of antibiotics changes a lot with concentration. And if you increase mm-hmm. the concentration quite a lot, they go from not being able to grow to start dying. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, here it is not known uh, whether even the, a synergy that you can see at the, the growth level is going to be seen a synergy also at the, at the killing level. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we, uh, in my group now, we try to understand uh, what happens in drug combinations at the killing level also across different species. Even more interesting, the amount of things you kind of, like the amount of experiments in the sense of it's not just this combination, this bacteria, it's also this specific place on the range of antibiotic concentrations. Uh, the number of experiments, it doesn't, it doesn't really, it's not, we're expanding okay. the, the, but it's not, the number of experiments is pretty similar. So you're um, just replacing it with a... A killing or yeah but we are asking a different question yeah. so okay. basically now we're moving from how do bacteria manage antibiotics to grow or antibiotics combinations to grow and what does mm-hmm. that mean biologically to uh, more a situation where we ask how do they die uh, with antibiotic combinations how do they survive how do they manage mm. to survive uh, and okay. are these mechanisms uh, conserved from species to species because there, there are not many known death mechanisms so no. there are many antibiotics uh, that inhibit growth, but there are not many that actually kill. No, I think a lot of people misunderstand that about antibiotics, that a lot of the time they're not necessarily killing. No, they are not necessarily killing. They're kind of just stopping them from growing and letting the immune system basically clear them out on its yeah. own. We try to understand if you can actually, for example, make antibiotics bactericidal with, mm-hmm. by adding another compound. It sounds like mm-hmm. a lot of interesting work. Thank you. <laughs> Are you using the high throughput approach concept on any other themes? <laughs> to, as I say, I mean, we, we, one of the reasons why I moved to Würzburg was because there is it's very rich in infection biology. So there is a mm-hmm. lot of people that work in infection biology. So one of the questions that I also had, so drug combinations, and I get this question often when I present the project, is that, what medium did you use? Is, do you think this is medium dependent? And my answer is always absolutely yeah. Yeah, absolutely, because the metabolic state of the cells is highly depending on their surroundings. 
and also the regulatory states of the cells yeah, and how, yeah. how high their stress level is mm-hmm. is highly depending on the surroundings. So I'm in generally interested uh, on how drug combinations change with the environment. And we, one environment that we are particularly looking at, uh, it's uh, within, for example, uh, intracellular pathogens when they are inside uh, their host mm-hmm. cells. This would be, we mostly work on, on salmonella inside macrophages because it's yeah. an easy system, it's well established. Yeah, it's a, it's a convenient one to work with. And we know a lot about interactions in salmonella, drug interaction salmonella outside, because mm-hmm. uh, we, I, I have done it during my postdoc, we have, we're doing it uh, for the killing level. Yeah. And now so we expand the studies on what happens when they are in different environments, namely inside of macrophage. So it's really nice that you're also like putting this approach into a more clinically relevant perspective while you're still really going for, you know, we just open mind, we want to know what's going on, not looking yeah. specifically for the clinical questions, yeah. but doing it in a more more clinically relevant setting. Yeah, so this is a little bit, that ha- this has to do a little bit with the way I approach science. So I think especially, this is especially important for, for antibiotic development or for mm-hmm. drug development in general, yeah. I mean, developing a drug is something that's very complicated. Yeah, It is very complicated and one should not underestimate how complicated it is. Because, you know, it is something that you want to give to a person and you want to treat the person, but you don't want to kill the person. Yeah. And nowadays, we know so much about so many more and more and more things that in my perspective, I think we need all efforts to develop new antibiotics. And for, especially for antibiotics, we really need all efforts, you know, yeah. all on board. And it's not Absolutely. everyone to each side, it's everyone together working for mm-hmm. one goal. And I think that everybody should do what, what they are good at doing. Mm-hmm. And then we put it together. So if I'm not a clinician, it's also not what drives me. I come from a family of a clinician, of <laughs> clinicians, I have to say. <laughs> but it's not really what drives my passion. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm not in love with hospitals. <laughs> so I am fine where I am. Um, but of course, if, if I see that we find out something that it has a potential to become a good clinical lead, then I would rather um, collaborate uh, with experts in pharmacokinetics, with experts in animal uh, models, with experts, mm-hmm. because then the job of developing a drug is done in a much better way because yeah. everybody knows very well what they are doing. It doesn't really help much to try here or try there a little bit. No. I mean, you can't be an expert at everything. It's better to, you know, bring your skills to the table. Say, this is what I can. This is what I can offer. This is what I can bring, and collaborate. Yeah. And listen yeah. to the other people that have other skills, and listen to what the other problems are. I mean, that's a great approach. That's yeah, largely I, the approach of the UAC as well. Yeah, I'm very collaborative. Also, yeah. I mean, I think it's also much more fun. I have to say. I mean, we are in, <laughs> we we are on science for the topic, but for the fun too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's much fun when you work with other people. Hmm, so that's a great thing I, to hear. Do you feel that has it been easy to collaborate or do you feel like it's been a little bit hard to have that approach? I mean, I have I cannot complain. So I, I especially during I mean, my, my postdoc project was pretty big. So we were mm-hmm. probably four groups collaborating okay. with everybody coming with different expertise. And now in my lab is the same. So we have uh, collaborators. I have one collaborator for uh, proteomics uh, from mm-hmm. EMBL. I have one collaborator for uh, quantitative microscopy from Stanford. Yeah. Um, I have local collaborating here for for stress response. Um, I think it's I don't I don't know maybe the people that I talk to they are also open minded for collaborations. Um, but I have had good experiences. Yeah. Um, Glad to hear that. You're pretty early in your career to starting your group yeah, or in early. the recent years. Then uh, it's got to be nice to have that collaboration aspect because you can kind of I feel like you can fill more space that way in a sense that yeah. like you can do new things you can maybe yeah, yeah. have new approaches from having this collaboration I mean 
you do also, of course, have to have people to get along with and everything like that. But it feels like it can be a huge benefit. Yeah, yeah. it's usually the, the, the project profits a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So we kind of touched on this a little bit with like the collaboration aspect and that drug discovery is really difficult. You kind of got to bring a lot of a lot of expertise to the table. But do you have any other wish lists or things that you think are missing from AMR research that can help improve the situation? I think, to be honest, I think the, uh, there is a lot of efforts uh, from the governments, from the WHO mm -hmm. going uh, in that direction. Of course, one would wish that the, the private sector would uh, bring something into. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I understand that uh, for them, the model, the business model is not attractive. Clearly. No. But I mean, I have to say that the, the private sector ha would have, in a perspective of translation, mm -hmm. uh, they are more experts probably than us. Yeah, I would say, or not probably, uh, they are experts yeah. in translational medicine. And there are now quite a lot of grants, at least in Germany, there are specific grants or the JPIMR also. So mm -hmm. this, there are grant initiatives that focus specifically in translational research. So this, I think, still need quite some development. Um, yeah. Maybe one thing that I find, if, if you watch me my wish list, mm -hmm. I find it very difficult to get good people, especially for computational work okay. um, in academia. And I, I don't think this is my problem. Uh, I think this is a general problem. No, yeah, problem. absolutely. You know, and the thing is, because all fields are profiting from more and more computational input, for example, artificial yeah. intelligence, which can help a lot. Drug design, I mean, there are, mm -hmm. there are, there are a couple of papers out the last year or yeah. two that uh, that used artificial intelligence to but for example it's difficult to attract people uh, that can do and can learn these kind of things to mm -hmm. stay in research in an academic setting yeah it's a bit of a downside that like you said there's not a lot of the private sector involvement in antimicrobial development research no but like that that's mainly in academia but i think a lot of the the people that have that expertise are kind of drawn to the private sector or because there's such an expansion into yeah the private sector with this, I don't even know how to say higher technology. I'm, yeah. I'm so outside of that field that I don't really know the terminology to use. But yeah, it's just, and very often it's also better jobs. Yeah, you know, it's stable. It, jobs. It's stable. I mean, academia has its benefits, but also its issues with uh, job stability and, you know, promotions and things like that. It, it's a, it's yeah. a special system. And yeah. It might be more appealing to leave and work in private sector, but then we lose that expertise when most of the research the basic research in antibiotic resistance is in academia. I think where the problem is that at the moment there is a cleavage that is very big between, yeah. where there is like a, a hole that is very big between uh, between the academia and the private sector. Mm. This, of course, would be better if it becomes smaller and smaller, progressively yeah. smaller. But maybe if there is some sort of initiative to kind of help use the resources that, to kind of fund the use of the resources in the private sector to channel them into where we kind of need them. I, I don't, I'm sure there would be an interest. I mean, it's a it's a big issue. And a lot of the times people kind of just like solving problems or like working on, on these big <laughs> button topics. But if your job is focusing on something else, then you're not going to work with it. So maybe if there was some push to kind of use the resources that are maybe in the private sector more. So there are grant initiatives that to promote this crosstalk, so to say, yeah. uh, between one and the other. Maybe what we need are more of those. Yeah, like this kind of consortia approaches mm -hmm. with a, with a space for both of them. Yeah, just yeah. to find some overlap where people can yeah. talk and work together a bit. I mean, it doesn't need to be everything, but 
Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I've never thought about that, that it, there is probably a bit of a resource drain to other other fields, other career paths. Oh, other there things. is. There yeah. is. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, this has to do, this is not particular to, to antibiotic research. Yeah. Okay, not everybody has to become a researcher. No. Um, yeah. You would like that there's enough people still interested in doing research to, to fill the There are great people. The yeah? There are great people. Yeah. But there are also great people that are going away. Yeah. Uh, and I just just wonder, in some sense, I think it would be nice to set up a framework that research also becomes attractive for this kind of people. And there's, a, there's definitely a, we, there would be a benefit of kind of raising up the benefits of working in research or at least just making it more attractive. And I think yeah. a lot of people would enjoy making research jobs maybe a little bit more stable <laughs> and other yeah. things. Yeah. yeah, this would be part of Part of a larger discussion that it would benefit yeah. a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but before we wrap up, I was wondering if there's anything else you'd like to tell our audience, maybe any current things you're working on that are of interest or if you have anything else. I think I already told most of the things we're working yeah. on. So one thing that I find very important in research or in academia is actually mentorship. So I'm very happy to mm -hmm. mentor people. Yeah. And one thing that I noticed is that sometimes, especially uh, at the postdoc level, uh, very often people are afraid to apply or to try something that is not completely their, their area of yeah. expertise. Because once you do the PhD, you are, of course, you spend four, four years working on something very intensively and you are for sure mm -hmm. an expert. And then uh, sometimes I, I have the impression that people are afraid to try something new. So I did that from my PhD to my postdoc and I had huge fun. I mean, I, gray, I learned a lot, of, a lot, a lot, a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and I ended up working uh, with the topic that I that I, I pursued during my postdoc. But what I did with my PhD, it actually helps me a lot. Yeah, the skills you learned then still help you, even in a slightly different field. Yeah. yeah. So this is uh, something that I would like in general to tell people, especially PhD students that are uh, more towards finishing their 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 PhDs. That look around, look around, keep eyes opening, and don't be afraid. If there is a topic or a group that you find interesting, reach out on your own initiative because sometimes there are no applications open, but that doesn't mean uh, that uh, that the opportunity is not there. You know. So if there is something, if you are motivated, if you really want to learn this, just go there and talk to the people. Yeah. Just reach out. Um, this is very important. I mean, I see over and over again, especially on Twitter, this kind of ah, yeah, I don't know if I should apply. Hmm. I don't fit the, all the lines in the, yeah. in the qualification request. And it's not that picky. But I, I think this is a little, has a little bit into what we we're talking about that people are that want to stay in academia are a little bit nervous to take risks in their career because it's very it's 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 a difficult path to follow. And I think a lot of young people maybe think, oh, I have to be really careful. I have to you know follow this path. Get my best chances I can. But I I get the impression as somebody who's not planning to do that that there's a huge benefit of stepping out of your comfort zone and learning something new and expanding your horizons a bit in your postdoc level research. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that working in research is permanently, you, you are permanently asked to be comfortable with step out of comfort zone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, that's a good way of putting it, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> you constantly, you're trying to always be in the front line and in the newest field, then it's always going to be new. It's always... Yeah, pushing the boundary out. Yeah, out of comfort zone is our playground. Yeah, so <laughs> the, embrace the, it. Embrace it. Embrace it. Yes, it is. Uh, 
But I have to say it is difficult uh, to handle uh, the, the uncertainty uh, mm-hmm. job-wise, I would say. Most good researchers actually, when they get to the postdoc level, they have a capacity to handle uncertainty research-wise because they, they know that they are so motivated and so passionate that they know they keep fighting and they keep looking yeah. and we will find um, new and super interesting things. Yeah. Um, you might have already learned that, you know, that passion project you had maybe didn't become what you wanted it to be, but you can, you know keep pushing and you'll find something and it'll it'll you learn like move on but you know keep going yeah as i say i mean sometimes sometimes you're looking for something and you find out something completely different it does not mean that it's not even more interesting sometimes yeah exactly you know so uh, that's fine i mean handling the handling the uncertainty of um, not knowing if you have a job afterwards i think this is much more complicated yeah, yeah? especially at the postdoc level when family starts playing a role because you have kids and uh, I also have a young family, so I also know uh, this feeling. Um, yeah. What I notice is that I tend not to think so much on these things. Um, and I don't know if this is, um, maybe it's um, a way to not to see the problem. <laughs> so I don't see the problem because I don't look for it. Uh, and then I don't worry. Uh, yeah. I don't know if this is the best solution. but <laughs> I mean, it's worked well for you. <laughs> this is what I can what I can say. I mean, mm-hmm. in the end, I think most of my friends that I met throughout my career, they they are working. Yeah, I mean, the yeah, companies will be glad to get good people, no matter no matter. Yeah, when so maybe it's also don't undervalue your skills if you're yes. stepping into a new field or if you're step looking into the, I say outside of academia job market. Like don't don't underestimate your skills. Don't don't undervalue what you've done and things. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's I mean, a. I'm very happy to hear that now when I'm reaching the end of my PhD. <laughs> it is important, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I think we'll, we'll wrap up there, but it was great to talk to you today. And yeah, Thanks I, a lot. Great to be here. It was a nice opportunity. Very nice. And I personally really look forward to seeing your research in the future. I think it sounds super interesting. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, I mean, I have to say Corona does not help. It does not help no. to set up technology. <laughs> uh, no. it, it does not help to... Um, Collaborating just, can't be super easy sometimes if you're trying no, to start new lab-based things. You kind of yeah. want to all be there. It's also very difficult to establish a lab during these times because it's difficult that you have to tell these people you work together, but you cannot work together. Yeah, and hard to get hard to get that kind of casual interpersonal thing where you you just talk, and yeah, it's, solve it's, problems, it's, and yeah, it's difficult. I think we're doing good at least. My perspective, my lab is great, so this is <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty happy. Um, and yeah, hopefully we can make it through. Uh, yeah, this, so say I, this. maybe the light's at the end of the tunnel now and soon things ah. can be a little easier. Yeah, hopefully. hopefully. Very yeah. much looking forward, yeah. All right, but with that, I'd like to say thank you. No, thanks a lot. It was very nice to, to meet you and to share like, some ideas with you today. Lovely. Right. And looking forward. <laughs> Bye. Bye. So, uh, Ava, what did you think about this interview? I really enjoyed uh, you talking to Ana Rita. It was great to hear her spirit and her energy. It was just so nice to hear firsthand from someone that is young in their scientific career, working in a topic that is on the state of the art of using of new technologies and trying to find new answers of things that we really had no answer for before these new technologies came on. So... I I had a blast listening to this interview and learning a little bit more of her 
you know, personal story into yeah. into that into the work since I already listened to her talk on the seminar. Yeah, I, I unfortunately haven't had a chance to listen to her talk yet, but I really enjoyed talking about her research, but also just her approach to research and approach to science. Like she has, it's it's very appropriate for the UAC. I feel like her approach is very collaborative, looking for new fields, what new ways to kind of do her thing. And just, I said this before, that she, she feels like a good representative of the ideal of science, basically, that you go into things with an open mind, you're not looking for answers per se for a specific thing, you're not looking for something you already expect to be there, you approach it with an open mind, and open consideration, and very open to collaboration. And as she said later, I mean, you have to be comfortable outside of your comfort zone, basically, you have to live in outside your comfort zone in this kind of research. And I think she really embraces that and just goes for it and reaches out for collaboration and basically says, you know, I'm, this is a great place to work for this because they have all this other stuff that I don't do. And I don't hear that a lot from people. People tend to like, oh, but uh, here I have a lot of people that work with what I kind of do and I'll have a lot of similarities. And I, I really liked that she basically said there's a lot of infection biology, which is something I don't really do, but it's something that like I'm, I'm moving into. And I, I, I like that a lot. Yeah, I think it's... Uh comes down to to being you know uh, confident on on your own knowledge and your own niche and your own specific mm -hmm. area because you know like it's it's easy and it's nice to be surrounded by people that work on your same area because you kind of like feed each other and you can learn from each other within that specific area but I think also being in a place where you share with other people's expertise, you are confident that what you know of your own area is there to help other people the same way that other people will help your own research and your own uh, progress of, of the science you're doing. And mm -hmm. I think she mentioned it by the end of the interview that postdocs are sometimes a little bit afraid to, you know, change or move into new areas. And I think we should embrace our own specificity in research within the bigger frame of other people's work and how we can really help each other out. And as you say, she's a beautiful example of this. And I think it's this uh, also this just pure curiosity in a way that kind of drives this push into new fields. If you're motivated by your own curiosity, then it's easier to go into something and you, I guess you can kind of feel more confident, like this is what I know, but I want to know this. Um, rather than, I mean, I tend to like staying in my comfort zone in research, which is one of the reasons why I feel like frontline research maybe isn't for me, is because I haven't gotten to that stage where I want to step out of my comfort zone, despite that curiosity. <laughs> I think it's it's perhaps another skill that is developed with time. As I said, yeah. it, it's based on a lot of your own confidence. And when we're young, we are starting to be specialist in a specific topic. It takes a little bit of time to kind of say, this is what I know, this is really how it is and I'm confident that I can help other people with my expertise as well right so mm -hmm. it's a little bit of that I think it's something that it needs to be matured and it needs to be nurtured and it needs to be worked through to be able to to get to that place right I really enjoyed also listening scientifically about the way that she approaches the science that she's doing you guys talked about being high throughput methods mm -hmm. and you did a little bit of an indent to explain that this is just you know basically scaling up things but I think it's maybe useful if we just mention a little bit what does it really means to do high throughput methods and one of the parts is like it's a bit of a technological advancement in the way that we can work in the lab and this was not really possible until 
pretty much recently, I would say maybe five to 10 years that things were able to get automated in labs and we were able to, you know, do things in big quantities in parallels and run these very big experiments, which a lot of the science that she's doing is doing benefits from having this approach. Uh, and also, you know, you're doing the same experiments, but kind of at a very small level. So you, many of them at the same time, basically. Yeah, in a small scale. So instead yeah. of using big glass tubes with five milliliters of culture for each one of them that you have to manually fill in with broth mm -hmm. and bacteria you basically do this in plates in very small volumes and you use robots literally pipetting robots that yeah. automate all the part which is putting the media putting the bacteria putting it into the incubator and even putting out of the incubator putting the machine which is going to read the type of data that you want to get from those cultures. So mm -hmm. this is, imagine a lab that is 50% human effort and 50% robot effort, so to speak. <laughs> and I think I think those kinds of pipetting machines that have been used longer, but like we're reaching the point where like we put together the technology and like the purpose and the, the I don't know, bioinformatics kind of thinking behind it and data management behind it that we couldn't really do before. So I think it's a kind of culmination of different things going together where this is really... A useful thing right now mm -hmm. but it requires pretty technological thinking yeah <laughs> I and I, this ties a little bit what she was saying that there is perhaps a lack of good computational biologists in in yeah. the research field because data management and data analysis is incredibly important when you're looking at this kind of science and this kind of approaches you basically need to use the computational resources in order to, to compute and to manage all the data that you gather. It's not enough with Excel sheets like we used to do. I remember yeah. my big Excel sheets, we were already like, you know, looking at those, all those numbers and hope that I don't delete the number by mistake or I move a column where it's not supposed yeah. to go. Uh, you cannot really work that way anymore. You have to work with advanced computational systems and approaches. And there is a lot of good people that know how to do this especially in the industry as you guys were saying for you know data management all the marketing people work with data day in day out mm. but how do we maybe make people that are interested in those numbers to move and work on a research environment and an academia setting it's uh, very yeah. interesting as well and i remember i don't remember who said this but i've heard it a few different times i think that like where we're at in, in natural sciences we have no issues generating massive amounts of new data. Our main problem is figuring out what that data means. Analyzing we we it, tend yeah. to have way more data than we can do anything with. Mm -hmm. If we could really appeal some people to come back, maybe, then uh, we could do a lot of good with what we already have, mm -hmm. to be honest. So if you are there listening to us and you have some computational background or you know someone that has a computational background that might be thinking on a career change, maybe you can... I encourage them to look into using that knowledge and uh, those processes in into science as well. Yeah, I think with that we can move on to the news section, which we are bringing two highly scientific articles to you, which relate to Anna's interview in one way or another. We're going to talk about yeah. a paper that focuses on yeast, and Anna started her research uh, on yeast as well. And we are also going to talk about a paper that looks into how perhaps antibiotic treatment by itself is not the only reason why an infection can be cured. So the immune system is also an important factor. And I think Anna mentioned that, you know, studying these antibiotic combinations, yeah, we sometimes forget that antibiotics don't really kill 
bacteria directly, but they might reduce their numbers and the immune system they can take over. And this mm-hmm. article that we're going to talk about goes very in detail about how these things might be happening. So with that, we see you on the news. So now for some news. Uh, Ava, do you have anything interesting to tell us about today? Yeah, um, I think we're going to start with the paper talking about the reasons why there seems to be a secondary infection or an invasive infection by Candida albicans, a yeast, in patients that are treated with broad-spectrum beta-lactam antibiotics. This is nothing new. This is something that we have known for quite some time, obviously by empirical data, which is Sometimes when patients get uh, beta-lactam for treatment, either of uh, urinary tract infections, for example, there is a secondary candidiasis, which is the invasive growth of candida albicans in different tissues or systems. Candida albicans is a yeast, but it's also a commensal of our own microbiome in the gut flora. It's also, for example, in the reproductory system flora. Mm-hmm. It's important for our own health as well. And it's been long known that, you know, the different communities in our microbiome made by bacteria and made by yeast, they kind of keep each other at bay, right? Like they are friends, they get along, they have their own niche there and they live happily ever after sometimes um, yeah, ideally in balance yeah, ideally in balance but when there is a disruption in this microbiome like it could be by taking antibiotics then things get a little bit out of hand and these candidiasis can happen sometimes it's just a little bit of an inconvenience but other times it can actually lead to quite lethal and, and dangerous infections because this yeast can invade the bloodstream system and other tissues and other organs, and then it might lead to organ failure and potentially death. So it's not just an inconvenience. Sometimes it can be yeah. something very serious. So we knew that this was happening, but we didn't really know the reasons or the mechanisms behind this phenomenon. It was always talked about like, you know, yeah, when you kill the bacteria using the antibiotic, then there is a space in that community that can be taken over by this uh, yeast and that kind of makes sense you know but with time we have known that it's not just as simple as uh, there is more space and then this yeast is going to grow but there is a chemical regulation that is happening between the bacteria growing and the yeast growing that keeps the yeast in a state that is, is called the yeast state as opposed for the hyphae state and the hyphae state is highly invasive. It's basically mm-hmm. they form these spikes and these um, filaments of the fungi and that can invade different tissues. So basically if you're thinking about like mold that you see the thready stuff on the mold are these hyphae that we're talking about. What did they do, Jenny, here to try to look into this? Yeah, so this article that where they're looking at this kind of stuff is called the peptidoglycan storm caused by beta-lactam antibiotics action on host microbiota drives candida albicans infection. It's a Nature Communications article. It's an open article, so you're welcome to find more detail in it. That was published on the 7th of May of this year. Yes, the role of peptidoglycan, which is a little molecule that is on the surface of the bacteria, has been known to work as a regulator of some sort in different systems, like also for the growth of candida albicans. But a very curious one is that it's been extensively understood to be a 
key regulator on the relationship between Vibrio fischera in the bobtail squid in Hawaii, which is a beautiful biology system that I got to study when I was in a course. So these squids, they prey at night. And what happens in the sea is that when they are praying at night, the moon shines and they will create a shadow on the sand in the water. And predators, when they see this shadow, they know the bobtail squid is around trying to prey and then they prey on them. So the bobtail has developed a system where Vibrio that glows on the night grows in a light organ in the belly and it produces a light into the sun that is basically the counteracting the shadow that the moonlight would do. So then they are invisible to these predators. And the regulation of how this Vibrio colonizes this light organ and establishes itself as a symbiont is mediated by the production of peptidoglycan from this Vibrio. So this is known for a really long time. So they know that peptidoglycan is a molecule that can be used to signal the growth of bacteria and to promote some sort of interactions in between, in this case, the squid and the vibrio. And they also saw that this peptidoglycan can produce the change from yeast form into hyphae form in candida albicans. Mm -hmm. So now what happens is that when do we have peptidoglycan being produced by the cells. It's not only when the cells are dividing, but it also happens when you are giving an antibiotic treatment that basically targets the cell envelope, like the beta-lactams. Yeah, um, they specifically target the production of peptidoglycan in the cell. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is very connected. And what they see with uh, beta-lactam treatment is that there may be a release of peptidoglycan. So what they looked at in the study, they put like the yeast next to bacteria and kind of saw if there was a change in how much of the hyphae were growing. So these like threads showing that there was a change from the yeast to the hyphae state, which is more able to cause infections. And then they also treated these bacteria with beta-lactams. So they treated the bacteria with antibiotics. And even though the cells were dying, the bacterial cells were dying, they saw an increase in this hyphae production of the yeast, which is implying that they're more, they would be more likely to cause an infection, basically. They looked at it, it's not just that the beta-lactams are present, so it's really this effect of the beta-lactam on the bacteria. And they look at several different kinds of bacteria, so it's pretty thorough, this. And they look at also non-beta-lactam antibiotics, so antibiotics that target other things in the cells, they look at a few of them, and they don't see this uh, effect. So it's really this one kind of antibiotic, which we have to say is very commonly used. This is by far the most prescribed kind of antibiotic today. I mean, penicillins, if you use that phrase, cephalosporins, carbapenemases, all these kinds of things, they're beta-lactam antibiotics. So this has a pretty big impact when we're looking at the effect on, on people. So they also looked and saw like not just when the yeast were growing next to the bacteria, they also wanted to see like if we've grown bacteria and then exposed them to beta-lactams and we kind of just take like the stuff that came from the bacteria, so the, not the bacteria themselves, but what we call the supernatant, the liquid, the media that the bacteria have been in and exposed these to them. We saw there's, there's still hyphal growth. So it's not just about the bacteria being present. It's not just about the antibiotic being present. It's about something that the bacteria have released. Yeah, so they, they were very thorough trying to mm -hmm. really come down to the minimal component that would actually make this effect happen. Yeah, they even do what they call um, mass spectrometry mm -hmm. to identify what this actual component is. And I mean, further than that, they even say, like, if the bacteria are resistant to beta-lactams, they see that there's not this uh, increase in peptidoglycan release that's causing this. Uh, they even did mice studies, which I think was really good as well, where they looked to see, like, not just, you know, 
how that they were colonized, basically, that the mice were able to be colonized by these yeasts, but also that they were able to leave the digestive system where they were colonized and enter into like the organs of the mouse when they had been exposed to beta-lactam. So they basically see this process of, you know, the beta-lactams are causing uh, infection to occur. They even looked at like yeast that had defective hyphae, so they couldn't really do this this filamentation and cause these infections. I mean, I thought it was a pretty thorough set of experiments. It wasn't just one thing. And uh, it explains a lot. Personally, (laughs) (laughs) we were talking about this, that we both have experience with um, being treated with beta-lactams for, or for my case, at least was urinary tract infections. And I think Mm -hmm. you said that too. And consequently getting yeast infections. And of course, we're not talking about the serious cases here. They're The aim is, you know, to prevent these serious life-threatening system-wide organ failure (laughs) situations, basically. But there is enough inconvenient yeast Mm -hmm. infections caused by beta-lactam treatments. And it's nice to know what's causing it, you know, from a personal perspective. Yeah, it also is, of course, for the fact that we know mechanistically what is happening. I think it's really cool that now Mm -hmm. I can understand why, why this goes down. But also we can prevent using antibiotics that will increase the chances of this happening in all Mm -hmm. cases you know like we time and time around come to talk more and more about the risk of taking antibiotics which were completely overlooked for really 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 long time we thought that antibiotics were basically magic candies that you take them they cure you from infections and they don't have any side effects and obviously that's not the case and the more information we have about, about how this happens the more we can help prevent that you know it brings a lot into the discussion, and especially when we're talking about patients that are immunocompromised, that are at high risk of having severe yeast infection complications. Mm-hmm. It's worth thinking about, you know, is this the appropriate treatment? Is this going to maybe cause a problem? It's a really difficult choice in the balance because all antibiotics have a potential downside, basically. Mm-hmm. And this is just throwing in another level. Of it's not just a matter of there being a niche available for the yeast, but it's actually actively promoting an infectious state in the yeast, basically. What they also found, which I thought it was a kind of an interesting side thing, is that if they were able to sequester the peptidoglycan produced by the bacteria using monoclonal antibodies, they yeah. saw a huge reduction on this hyphae production. So you can think potentially in the future that there is a therapeutic drug that we make to give together with the beta-lactams that helps sequestering the extra peptidoglycan that is produced and then you are reducing the risk of this happening. I just think it's really cool that we have all this more information and that we can know what's really happening and try to work yeah. on preventing it as well. That's great. It was a very neat, very thorough article. I really recommend you to go and look into the details if you are uh, into it and we also leave a blog post on the nature community group that they wrote about the main results of this article if you're interested on reading and sharing around and with that we can move to our second article of the day which is an article also published in nature communications titled rapid evolution and host immunity drive the rise and fall of carbapenem resistance during an acute pseudomonas aeruginosa infection and that was published on april 28th of this year what are they telling us jenny in this article so this is a really interesting article i think i mean it's it covers something that we don't often see like a full picture of so there was a patient that uh had ventilator associated pneumonia caused by Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And what they did basically was test many different days. They took samples. So they have 
access to a lot of different samples over a certain they know what day it was and they have it over the whole time she was ventilated. So then they can basically track her infection and what was causing the infection if there were mutants and that sort of thing. Uh, they can look at resistance patterns changing over time. They had a way of sampling the host immune system and they can tie this in with information about the patient. In other words, like what was she treated with at the time for how long and that sort of thing. So it's a really interesting story of this patient's infection in my mind. So she had two waves of this infection. The first one, interestingly enough, actually started decreasing before they were able to start treating her. And she was treated with um, piperacillin tazobactam, meropenem, and colistin. So even though the, the infection was actually decreasing before they started antibiotic treatment, but the antibiotic treatment, of course, finished off the, the first wave of the infection. It was a pretty short term of the first wave of the infection. And then there was a bit of a lag before the second wave of the infection which is, interestingly was caused by meropenem-resistant bacteria, so meropenem-resistant pseudomonas aeruginosa. And the actual resistances, so like the mutations that caused resistance in these different pseudomonas aeruginosa, changed. There were three main different ones. And the proportions of how many of these bacteria had the different mutations changed over time as well. So there's a lot of things to consider here. There, the different mutations might cause higher level or lower level resistance to meropenem, which was the beta-lactam in this case. And they might also grow faster or slower. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of this dynamic balance of, okay, well, this one maybe causes a higher resistance level, but when there wasn't meropenem treatment at the time, so maybe it's not necessary, decreases in prevalence for another resistant one, which maybe grows faster. And there's this kind of dynamic change, which is really interesting. And I know I say interesting a million times right now, but most interesting for me as someone who thinks a lot of, okay, bacteria, infection, antibiotics, done. I thought it was really great that they looked at the host immunity here as well. So they looked at certain levels of cytokines, so basically molecules that can increase or decrease at different stages of an infection and kind of be used to scale like what the immune system is doing in that patient at the time. I say this with terrible experiences with immunology. I don't really know how to explain immunology. <laughs> but what they saw was that at, this, at the second wave of treatment, she was still actually being treated with colistin at the time, but the infection still came back and it didn't. the colistin maybe wasn't helping, they see after the fact. When they stopped colistin treatment, the infection actually started clearing. Uh, and it appears to be that the patient's own immune system cleared the infection in the end. And there was also some maybe thought that they had that maybe in some cases colistin can actually decrease the effect of the host's own immune system. Not to say that it can't necessarily kill bacteria, it's not a matter of uh, resistance, but that the host's own immune system might be a little bit repressed with colistin treatment. And when this colistin treatment was removed, she actually was able to clear the infection with her own immune system, which is, to me, super interesting. <laughs> if I've understood everything right, that's a really great finding to see that like this interplay between antibiotic treatment, which I'm not saying it wasn't necessary. Of course, I'm not the doctor. I don't know this, but this balance between antibiotic treatment and immune system working together and how the patient was cleared in the end. So this was a nice storyline, basically, of her infection. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It was great to see this very detailed investigation of what was happening with her. You know, they were taking all these 
time point samples and they're looking into phenotypic changes, you know, how did the cells grow better or worse? Did they have resistant variants? Were they resistant? Were they not? Looking into how much the immune system was active or not active at that time point. Then just this very thorough investigation and seeing that, you know, it's not just an infection happens we give an antibiotic, it gets clear or it doesn't get clear and that's the end of the story. No, there yeah. is a much more dynamic picture into how a patient gets infected, how the immune system initially actually works to try to get rid of that infection, which is very helpful because then the antibiotics that we give can work better and there's mm-hmm. also potentially less risk for selecting pre existing mutants. And then how the mutations that happen also in itself are dynamic and how the different resistant mutants in an infection have their own dynamic evolution, selection, and as they say, rise and fall of these different resistant variants. And ultimately how a strong immune system is really important for the clearance of an infection. And this yeah. is a patient that it wasn't admitted for anything infection related. It was no. an hemorrhagic shock. So I, we assume it's a wound and loss of a lot of blood. So he needed respiratory support. So this patient is put on respiratory support. And within the first 72 hours of being in the hospital, it acquired a nosocomial infection, which is an infection associated with the hospital visit. Mm-hmm. This infection develops it goes up, immune system works, we realize there's an infection, we're able to see what it is, we give treatment, the treatment does something, but it also selects for resistance, then the treatment is stopped, the own natural selection of how this bacteria grow and evolve plays a role, and ultimately the immune system comes back and really helps clearing out the infection mm-hmm. completely. So it's a beautiful story, as you were saying. Yeah. Aside from this nice picture of the actual infection in her lungs, because it was it was pneumonia, it was a lung infection, they even have samples from the gut in the same time periods, which is great because they were looking at, okay, so basically when they run meropenem, was it, are the, the samples we've collected in the gut, were they meropenem resistant? Did we see a change in resistance in the gut? And they didn't. And one of the things they were thinking about is, okay, so meropenem actually doesn't easily like get into the gut, basically. It, it gets into the lungs pretty well, it doesn't get into the gut. So one of these thought processes of, you know, the gut as basically a source of potential resistance in this case maybe wasn't true. But they do also mention, you know, just because they aren't resistant doesn't mean that they can't kind of be harbored in the gut in one way or another. And I mean, it's just a really nice kind of thorough story of what was going on in this patient at that time, which we don't often get, especially with clinical case studies, basically. They're usually not this well-described, well-open. A, lo- a lot of these kind of studies have been done before in patients with chronic long-term infections, like, for example, mm-hmm. uh, cystic fibrosis patients, because they do have also a very dynamic and complex yeah. microbiome in the lungs and how things are happening. So it's, it's an easier test subject. But this is one of the first examples of an acute infection, which is something that the Doctors see day in, day out in their ICUs. This is an important thing. How does it actually work? How the resistance develops and it goes away and the immune system takes care of the infection? It was just beautiful. There's a lot more information than what we're talking about here. We're giving a very brief overview. So please, if you're interested, look more into the article. It's an open, also an open article and uh, there's tons of information there. That's great. Yeah. We are also living coverage in the in a popular news outlet by the authors, actually, which is a very nice thorough summary as well of, of what they did. So we hope you enjoy that. Yeah. And with that, we are done for this month. Uh, yeah. 
just to say that uh, this summer we are not taking a hiatus. So we have yeah. already on the schedule uh, episode per month. So look forward to that. We still have one episode that is going to be based on an interview of someone that's coming to give a talk. But we have also interviewed some interesting people that have not come to give talks yet, but we think are people that you want to know from and you want to learn their story as well. So yeah. with that, we hope that you will be back with us on the month of July. Until then, we hope you enjoy the good weather, the summer coming up and the long daylight hours as well, <laughs> depending yeah. when you're in the world. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> thank you very much. All right. Bye. Bye. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. <laughs>